Thanks, worship team. That was awesome. Rock and be thou my vision. Well done. Those hymns are tough. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, my name's Tony. If we haven't met, it is a privilege and a pleasure to be with you. Now, uh, if you've been with us a little bit, you know that we are journeying through the Old Testament. We're slowly working our way through. Uh, we're at Genesis 6 through 9. We're basically at just before, during, and after the flood. Now, before I dive into the text, I want to set the stage a little bit via a very simple and commonplace story. So we were meeting, my wife and I were meeting with a couple earlier this week, and during the conversation, my wife had to go check on the kids, and so she left, and while she left, uh, one of, the conversation turned to this menu that was on our wall, right? So we were sort of sitting outside, looking through a window, and saw this menu on the wall that highlights the meals during the week. And we were talking about the meals, and I was like, yeah, Jeannie is, my wife, is an amazing cook. And as soon as I start talking about her cooking, then Jeannie walks in the room, or walks outside and joins us, and she looks at us like, how did we get here? Why are we talking about my cooking right now? Right, and then we had to sort of circle back to, oh, so you left the room, and we talked about the menu, and then it led to Tony saying you're an awesome cook, and, and then she's like, oh, okay, I get it. Now, I think we've all had that experience, that experience of leaving or walking into a conversation that is already in progress and being like, what is going on? The thing is, I think we underappreciate how often this happens when we flip open our Bible and we start reading. Instead of being out of the loop for a minute or two, we're out of the loop literally for a few thousand years. And so as we dive into Genesis 6 through 9, which is typically called the story of the flood, I want to help us sort of look at the text but keep an eye to that original conversation that is going on between various flood stories in that part of the world and how the Genesis story actually speaks into challenges them. I've divided this sermon into multiple scenes. Scene one. This is Noah. This is uh, six, chapter six, verses nine through twelve. Scene one begins with a reminder that things are not good. Verse eleven. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Right? Clearly, this is not the world that God hoped when, in Genesis 1, He made everything. Right? He created humankind to bear His image. Right? And an image bearer means someone who represents your interests on earth. Humans are created to represent God and His kingdom on earth, and yet they turn to violence. Cain kills his brother. Lamech's vengeance spreads like a virus through the earth. Genesis 1, God created stuff, creates humans. He looks down, he's like, man, they are good. Now, he looks and sees that humans are corrupt, violent. They've gone their own way. They're bearing their own image versus his. And so, God initiates a de-creation. Now, that might be, you maybe not have thought of the flood this, flood this way, but actually it's an undoing of the order that he brought in Genesis 1, specifically day 3. On day 3, in Genesis 1, God separates 
the water from the dry land, making a space for humans to live. Genesis 6, he allows the waters to take back over the dry land again, undoing the order he brought in day three, hence decreation. Now, I want to riff contemporary just for a second because I think that sometimes when we read this story, we wonder why God would initiate a flood on the earth at all, right? That's a lot of death and destruction. And I think this wondering really profoundly speaks into our contemporary context, right? As West Coast Californians, we have a super high value for the human person, and that is good. We are made in God's image, yes and amen. But we also have a pretty low view for the holiness, justice, majesty, transcendence of God, I think. Consider this, right? One of the accounts of the flood that sort of is a a contemporary or a rival to the Genesis story comes out of Babylon. The Babylonian flood flood account isn't initiated because of human violence or evil. Rather, there's a council of the gods. And the gods look down at humans and they're like, man, They are multiplying so fast, and they are making a lot of racket. They're making a lot of noise. And what do they do? They initiate the flood. Let's drown the noise, literally. The contrast is really important. The ancient Babylonians didn't even think the gods needed a good reason to send the flood. Right? Human life was so undervalued in the Babylonian account that the God's annoyance is enough to eradicate human life. Importantly, when we contrast that story to the story pictured in Genesis, it challenges both our assumptions and the Babylonian ones. In Genesis, human life really matters, right? We're made in God's image. When humans become violent and evil in Genesis 6-6, it says that God grieves He doesn't initiate the flood because of a noise complaint. He initiates decreation because of humanity's violence, evil, and injustice. But we also need to recognize that the author of Genesis also has a profound appreciation for the justice, the holiness of God. The author of Genesis appreciates that God is the creator. He's the Lord. He's the master. He is the judge, not us. Right, Genesis 6 reminds us that God's word is final, that God's perspective is ultimate. And I think stories like the flood, they remind us, they force us to sort of adjust our assumptions about the spiritual life and the nature of what it means to be in relationship with the creator of the universe. Right, not a self-help spirituality or a God who happens to always agree with us. I remember uh, a few years ago when I was uh, working at a church up in Washington. It's this pretty large church, and I just remember having this one season where people kind of kept saying the same thing to me about why they wanted to be a part of our church up in Washington. And they kept saying this one statement. They said this, the teaching is right on. And it never really sat well with me, so I'd sort of push out it a little bit, like, what do you mean by that? And what became clear is our teaching affirmed what they already thought about the Bible and God and the kingdom and following Jesus. And I had this like deep sense of like uneasiness about this. And I remember going back to our 
preaching team, our pastoral teaching team, and saying, guys, this is really unsettling, right? The prophet Isaiah says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways, right? That sometimes when we, if we, our goal is to communicate the scriptures of God, God's communication to us, right? It shouldn't always just affirm what we already think. Tim Keller says, if God and the Bible always agree with you, then maybe you are worshiping your own version of God. And so I went back to the teaching team and I was like, man, we got to be really careful here. Right? The scriptures have a picture of God who is both holy and different than us. And yet, who loves us. Let's get back to the story. So God looks out and he sees evil. But he also sees one man who in the text says, right, in verse 9, is righteous, blameless, and walks with God. So in this way, the larger story tells us not only why God sends the flood because of violence and evil, right, not a noise complaint, but also why he saves Noah, just like Enoch in chapter 5, who walks with God and doesn't experience death. So here Noah walks with God and doesn't experience death during the flood. And this idea of walking with God, which I talked about last week, becomes central then to what it means to live by faith, which brings us to scene two, chapter six, verses 13 through 22. All right, so because of humanity's violence, God decides to initiate this decreation. He tells Noah to build an ark. I read this story, uh, our family read this story together. One of the things, a few nights ago, one of the things that stands out to me about like the kids' version of the story, is it often involves Noah in a desert building a boat and people like making fun of him. And then we had this conversation as a family of like, you know, how do you follow God when people might make fun of you? Which is like, a, it was an awesome conversation. But what stood out to me is the kids' story totally ignored the detailed instructions on how to build the ark that are actually in the story. Let me read them to you. This is verses 14 to 16. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. Length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above. Set the door of the ark on its side. Make it lower, second, and third. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Right, so you imagine Noah, like, you know, 500, you know, 300 cubits, which is about 500 feet, right? So, okay, okay, I got to make it 500 feet long, uh, 30 cubits high. Okay, I got to make it 50 feet high. Uh, I need a, a door here. Okay, pitch, this type of wood, right? He's following the instructions. Right? And then God tells him what animals are to enter, how many, and he gives him all these different details. Now, this is my question. Why do you think the author of Genesis gives these details in the Bible. Seriously, why? Why couldn't you just say, build a boat? Okay, I'll build a boat. Why give the detailed instructions? You know, many theologians think that God gives detailed instructions, not simply, right, so that we can build replicas. Now, I'm not anti-replica, I'm pro-replica. That God actually gives detailed instructions so that we can see thousands of years later, right, in our time, 
what it means to walk with God. Right? That walking with God isn't, is ultimately about listening to God's voice and doing what He says. And that these instructions are given so that no one knows how to walk with God. Okay, God, you said, you know, 500 feet long, 50 feet high, door here. Okay, I got it. A number of years ago, I, um, I read Mother Teresa's journals. They were, they were published after her death. And I, I sort of imagine, you know, Mother Teresa, right, she spent her life in the slums of Calcutta that she must have had this, like, heroic side to her, like, I'm going to go on behalf of the kingdom and the gospel to save people and live in the, you know, the hardest place in the world in order to, like, exemplify the kingdom. You know, she had this sort of heroic bent. But when I read her journals, she has this pivotal moment as a young woman. She's on a train, and she makes this vow. She has the experience of God, and she makes this vow. She says to God, God, I will always say yes to your invitation. Mother Teresa is not in that train imagining one day I'm going to be in the slums of Calcutta. Mother Teresa is not sort of scaffolding her life at that moment. Simply she is saying, God, I will say yes to anything that you say. And eventually that leads her to the slums of Calcutta. Eventually that leads her to being with people as they die in a home for the dying. Eventually that leads her to international fame. But that's not where it started. It started with a young girl on a train saying, God, I will say yes to any word spoken from your mouth. And I think that sheds a little light on the story of Noah. Right? Noah's not a hero. Noah is simply a guy who says yes to the words of God. And here again, we have contrast to other flood stories in that area of the world. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is in Babylon, right, the heroes are called finder of eternal life. The other hero is called uh, exceedingly wise, right, when you take their names and translate them. Right, so the heroes of the Babylonian flood accounts are called finder of eternal life. Why? Because he finds eternal life. Exceedingly wise, because he navigates all these hardships. He is super wise. Noah, his name means rest. And he rests in God. Yes, Noah is the lead character of the story, but it's not because he's wise. It's not because he finds and secures eternal life. He simply does what God says. And this is reinforced in, ver reinforced in verses 21 and 22. God says, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. I shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, why is this important? Who cares about food? Well, the word take has been so far associated with self-initiative and going their own way. Eve takes the fruit in Genesis 3. The sons of God take wives, both of which do not go in a, in a positive direction. Here, God directs Noah to take, and he obeys. Right? He listens to the voice of God, which again brings us then to, st 
scene three. This is chapter seven, verses one through five. And here, God invites Noah into the ark. Seven one, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me. Right? Because Noah's righteous, because he listens to the voice of God and obeys, he's invited into the ark. He enters. Right? And then having listened, God tells him the rain will come for 40 days and nights. In verse 5, right, then the author again reinforces, right, and Noah did all the Lord commanded him. But I want us to pay attention here. Notice, Noah does not get any of the details, specifically about the timelines, until he has already listened to God and entered the ark. The door closes, and then God is like, okay, it's going to be seven days, right, and then 40 days. I think this is an important principle just about what does faithfulness look like. Faithful action often precedes the information that we want in order to feel in control. So many of us, we want information before we'll make a decision. God, give me all the details. I can weigh the pros and cons, and then I'll I'll decide. That's not how it works. I remember... Uh, you know, probably one of the larger risks our family took was coming down here to do this replant. We were at sort of a small mega-ish church up in Washington, and it was super comfortable. It was really predictable. We had this big staff team. Uh, we had a community of people that really cared about us, right? And I was offered the senior pastor position up there. And at the same time, God said, you know, Tony, I want you to go to this little church that's really struggling and may, may die. And we came down here, and we had no idea what would happen. We didn't know if we'd be here for six months and then be unemployed. We had no idea what would happen. We just knew God was inviting us down here. But I can tell you this. Sometimes not knowing is the thing that actually pulls us closer to Jesus. I can tell you so many days when I was sort of overwhelmed by not knowing, uncertain of what was going to happen and what did it do, it led me actually closer to Jesus. Because I knew the only, per- the only hope I had at that moment, overexposed, having said yes, was, God, you better pull through. Sometimes in our faithfulness, in saying yes, we actually come closer to the person of Jesus. And this is what it means to walk with God and live by faith, to say yes. Which brings us to scene four, which is all about the flood itself. And there's a specific focus in scene four is, and like who is in the ark and this repeated emphasis that the only reason all these beings, animals, people are in the ark is because right, Noah did as the Lord commanded. Chapter seven, verse nine and 16. And here, again, we're now in dialogue with other Mesopotamian flood stories. The Mesopotamian gods in their flood story are unable to control the flood they initiate. They start getting freaked out. In their actual story, it says they're frightened and, quote, they cowered like dogs. The gods are cowering like dogs because the waves of the flood are getting so big, they're freaking out. But not so the Hebrew god. He isn't scared. 
As we get to the next scene, what you're going to see is that the Lord merely sends a wind to pass over the water and they subside. Psalm 29.10 says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Right? He's big. He's majestic. He is the creator of all things. He's worthy of worship. Which brings us to scene five, which begins with God again sending this wind to make the dry land appear. Again, to make to restart the creation on day three, to separate the waters and the dry land. Chapter 8, verse 1 through 2. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Right? God doesn't forget Noah or the other creatures. He remembers. But often I think what we want to imagine is like, Instant action. God speaks, the wind comes, and then it's like Noah's reality changes instantly. That's not what happens, actually. There's this gap, which I think matches our felt experience. God says this, and we do it, and then we're waiting. Anne and I were praying on Thursday afternoon right here, just for the church, and Anne was led to Psalm 2714 which says, wait for the Lord, be strong and courageous, wait for the Lord. We were just praying into it, and Anne was sort of drawn to this word strong, that's sort of sandwiched between waiting. And we were talking about or reflecting and praying about, like, why is strong there? And as I've thought about it, I realized, because it takes an unbelievable amount of strength and courage in order to wait, doesn't it? Isn't it a lot easier to just rush into action? It actually takes strength. It takes courage to wait on the creator of the universe. It says that Noah waits 150 days. Think about that. Five months in a boat with a few members of your family and a ton of animals. And as he waits, right, he sends out some birds. He sends out a raven, some doves who make three separate journeys. And then one dove doesn't return and no one knows the flood is over. Though, I want to note this here. I would imagine myself that, that I know that there's land out there, so what do I do? I'm just like, bust out those doors, I'm free! <laughs> but that's not what Noah does. Even here, after five months in a big old boat with his family and tons of animals, Noah waits again until God directs him to leave the ark. God tells Noah to leave the ark, and then he issues very similar invitations or commands that he gives to the creatures in Genesis 1, right? Go forth and multiply. And this is clearly meant to re-signal to the reader, right? This is a fresh start for the new creatures, right? The decreation is over, the recreation has begun. Which brings us to the final scene, scene 6. Just chapter 8, verse 20 through 9, 19. Right, so the flood subsides. And Noah, right, as his first act in the world, worships God. Verses 20 to 21. Noah built an altar to the Lord. 
and took out some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt sacrifices on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's pretty interesting, right? This whole time, Noah has simply responded to God's invitation, right? 300 cubits, 30 cubits, build the ark. Okay, I'm going to enter the ark. Should I leave? Okay, God, leave the ark. This is the first time in the story that Noah acts without God's direction. The floodwaters subside. He's invited to leave the ark. And the first thing he does of his own volition is built an altar to worship God. Now, as the story comes to a close, a number of contrasts, again, with other, other ancient flood stories come to mind. So, in the Babylonian creation stories, humans are created, right, to provide food for the gods. And so, when the flood ends, right, in the Babylonian stories, it says, quote, the gods gather like flies around the sacrifice, right? Because in the Babylonian story, they also have a sacrifice that the gods smell, but these gods, they haven't eaten, you know, for 150 days or whatever. And so they're starving and they're like gathering around the sacrifice. Also, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the gods are surprised to discover that any humans have survived. And then they start this massive argument about what are they supposed to do with these surviving humans because they're afraid that they're going to start making noise again. And when we read Genesis, in light of these other flood stories, we start to see some of the things that make God, the Lord, different. Right? God makes humankind to be in relationship with Him, not to be a slave. And the Lord in Genesis obviously has no rival either. Right? He doesn't share power with some other being. He is God Almighty. Right? He's not surprised to find Noah alive. And when he declares his covenant in verse 9, there's no one to challenge it, right? His word is final. Verse 9, 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. 9, 12. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Right? And what's that covenant about? Back to chapter 8, verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. All right, lots to say there. I want to highlight three things. First is this. It's really important that we recognize the evil in man's heart that precedes the flood follows humankind after the flood. The wording is almost identical in Genesis 6, 5, right? The intentions of man's heart are evil. Flood, post-flood, God says in 8, 4, right? The intentions of man's heart are evil from his youth, right? The flood happens because of the evil in man's heart. And this exact phrase is repeated just before God makes a covenant. So God isn't going into this blind. He's not like happy after the flood being like, oh, it's perfect now. No, he sees the evil in the human heart. And yet, point two, he makes a covenant. He makes a promise. 
to never destroy humanity again, to never initiate the decreation. And the sign of that covenant is a bow. Now, I want you to do something for me for a second. Imagine a rainbow in the sky. Just kind of imagine it. Now, I want you to put a, a string on the bottom of the bow and now sort of put an arrow in it. Where is that arrow pointing? Towards God, right? Well, some theologians think that this is God's way of saying that if things go bad, that God is going to be personally responsible. Which means, in the very beginning of Genesis, God promises to bear the burden of human evil. Which, if it's true, points even here, in Genesis 9, the very first book of the Bible, it points to the ministry of Jesus. God taking on human flesh, bearing the punishment of evil on a cross that we might live. And when we contrast the Genesis story again with the Epic of Gilgamesh, what we see is the main character in the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? A Babylonian epic about the flood. After the flood, this main hero, he actually gets made immortal and joins the gods because he's so amazing. Not so with Noah. In fact, the story of Noah ends with this striking picture of Noah's imperfection. Now, Aaron and I will get more into this in Cutting Room Floor this week, but the basic idea is this. Noah drinks way too much, and it ends up not going well. And the point of ending the story like this is to point out and reinforce that God keeps his promises, even to broken people like Noah. And in the end, it's not Noah's faithfulness. It's not ours that is the key to the earth's salvation, right? God's faithfulness to the covenant is central. And what we'll see as we read the Old Testament is that the history of Israel is the history of failure after failure after failure. They do not faithfully live in accordance with the covenant or as image bearers of God. Instead, right, God will take on flesh and save humanity through the person of Jesus. Right, the story of the Bible isn't a story of human heroism, but God's faithfulness to the covenant that takes on its purest and most profound shape in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And the question is, okay, what's the story of the flood? How does, it, how does it sort of make sense in our everyday life? I have two things I want to emphasize. One is just this idea of saying yes. I mean, in the story, Noah says yes to some very specific invitations. It's not like theoretical. I was talking with Aaron this week, and we were talking about how, and he was sort of in particular talking about how we live in an age where people, quote-unquote, resonate with certain truths and ideas. Like you hear a politician, oh, I resonate with that politician, right? Oh, I resonate with that social media post or a preacher who's saying, yeah, I really resonate with that. 
Like it's, it's sort of like, I like how it sounds. I like how it makes me feel. Maybe it affirms what I already think. But what's super clear in the story of Noah is that Noah doesn't just resonate with God. God, I, this is my Noah voice. God, I totally am into this flood thing. That's a good idea. An ark? Oh, I love it. Great idea. You know? Or, God, I, I don't really like where this is heading. This is my other Noah voice. You know, God, I don't really like where this is heading. You know, I, I don't really resonate with your plan. Instead, what do we see? Noah actually hears the speaking voice of God asking him to do things, and he obeys. I guess my question for you this morning is this. Do you resonate with God? Or do you actually listen to Him and obey His voice? I've been trying to wrestle with this personally. So I've noticed this pattern in my life. Sometimes in the morning, I feel this pressure to like get going. Maybe I feel a little overwhelmed by all the tasks I have or I feel anxious by it. So I feel this sort of internal pressure, this sort of need to dive in and get stuff done as a way to deal with my feeling of overwhelmed or anxious. And in many ways, this serves me well. It helps me get a lot of stuff done. But it also gets me into this groove of activity that isn't really attentive to God's speaking voice. So recently, I began this really simple practice in the morning. Like usual, I just sort of open up the scriptures. Right now, I'm reading through Luke, and I just read a small chunk of the gospel. Then after, I just set a stopwatch for 10 minutes, and I just sit in silence in the presence of Jesus, and I listen. And if my mind starts drifting to all the things I have to do in the day, right, I just quote Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. I just say, be still. The truth is, there's nothing really new or revolutionary about this. And then after, at the end, after 10 minutes, my little alarm will go off, and I'll say the Lord's Prayer. I'll just say, God, you know, just pray, you know, the Lord's Prayer, that my will on earth, that His will on earth would be done, right, through me. Thing is, pretty simple. It does a few things, though. One, it breaks the power for me to act and to move. Like, it forces me to slow down. Second, it puts me in a position where I could listen to Jesus' voice if he has something to say to me. And three, even if Jesus doesn't say anything, I get to just sit with him for a little bit. Sometimes he tells me to pray for someone. Sometimes he tells me to reach out for some, to someone. I've started to call it sort of my daily practice of availability. Just making myself available to the speaking voice of Jesus. Just saying, hey, I'm here. I'm listening. As a church, you know, very early on, we established this acronym called ABLE. It's kind of like our discipleship acronym, A. Stands for attend. Make a little time each week to attend to the presence and the voice of God. That's what I'm trying to do. Attend. B, bless someone inside and outside the church. L, learn from the scriptures. E, eat with someone, right? Which is really about food, but really about being present to people. 
Friends, what I'm trying to do is combine A and L, attend and learn. And then my hope is that God will invite me to bless people. God will give me people to spend time with. My guess is, if you make space to listen to the voice of Jesus, he might actually give you opportunities to concretely say yes and not just resonate with him, right? To obey. Now, I totally get it, though, if you're like, holy cow, I have no idea what to do. You're like, I listen to God seriously? Well, you're in luck. So Kathy Pope's been doing these groups uh, called Listening Practice. And if you are interested in learning to listen, she's forming little pods of people, and they're trying to figure out how to listen to the voice of God together. So email me, email Aaron, email Kathy. We'll get you connected to her if you want to listen, learn to listen to the voice of God in community with others. I think this is a great opportunity. The second thing I want to talk about is sort of God as creator and Lord. I mentioned this earlier. God says to the prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. And I guess I just wonder, how do you feel about that? Do you actually trust that God's ways and God's thoughts are better than yours? We live in an age that loves to deconstruct. We live in an age that loves to undermine authority. And honestly, authorities and peoples in power have done some pretty horrible things throughout time. Totally. And yet, the scriptures declare that God is good and loving and powerful and mighty and Lord. I think stories like the flood, what they do is they uncover some of our assumptions about who God is. So pay attention right now. Think about the flood story. What does it do in you? Do you feel yourself kind of leaning back from God? Do you find yourself leaning in? Do you find yourself kind of like a little grisly and upset? Like, God, why, you know, a little grumbly? Like, why would you do that? Or do you find yourself kind of like, God, I want to trust you? How do you find yourself responding to the story? This is the thing. This is not an abstract exercise in theology. Like, oh yeah, God is sovereign, you know. Oh, I think he's more imminent in the person of Jesus. That's not the point of this. This is the point. How we imagine God fundamentally shapes our discipleship. If a rabbi is walking by you and he says, follow me, do you say this to him? Well, I'm just kind of curious. What are your perspectives on this and this? I just want to make sure we resonate or in alignment. Or do you say, you are the Lord. You are the master. You are the creator of heaven and earth. My job is not to interrogate you. My job is to say, yes, master. Thank you, Lord. You are the potter. I am the clay. You are the creator, and I am the creature. How we see God 
fundamentally affects whether and how we follow Him. This is why it's worth taking some time to sort of figure out in us where does our heart go, where does our mind go when we think about the bigness, the majesty of God, particularly when it comes to things like the flood, which we look at and we're like, I don't really like that. Super practical experiment to try. Right, we're talking about walking with God. So why don't we take that from a theory to a practice? Why don't you this week walk with God? Literally, go for a walk. Two, do it along the threshold of the dry land and the water. Because that's what the flood is all about. It's about day three. It's about God, right, taking the waters and separating the dry land. Go for a literal walk at the junction of the water and the dry land and talk with God about what you think about Him being the creator and you being the creature. See what happens. Because the truth is, where we land on this question has all kinds of implications for our discipleship and our life with Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, I just thank you that you are good and that you are glorious, that you love us and that you do not let us take the wheel of our life and of the world and go crazy. God, you are in control. God, you are the creator. You are the king. And God, in this moment and on this day, God, we do ask that you would help us discern how to say yes to you. You would help us, God, figure out how to submit to you, even though our hearts may be inclined towards evil, even from our youth. God, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your mercy. And we ask for your kind words your guidance and instruction that we might follow you all the days of our life. God, we are humble, broken creatures, and we need you. Rescue us. Lead us. Be there for us. In your holy name we pray. Amen.